6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 8. I encourage you to make a budget, not of your dollars, of your time. You can always get more dollars, but you can't get more time. In other words, your time constraints are the crucial ones. And as you analyze where you really spend your time, um, that will should impact, okay, the kind of capital investment you make. Often, all, many of us make investments in things that we don't really have time to enjoy. That's a poor investment. Uh, any pilot will tell you there's nothing more expensive than a plane that stays in the hangar or a boat that stays at the dock or whatever. So one of the things you do is analyze carefully where you can really spend your time and use that insight to lower your cost of living. Why are you going to do that? To step two, use that delta to get out of debt, personal debt. Debt is a presumption on the future, and we don't know the future. So it's, so I'm going to suggest that debt, personal debt, is contrary to God's plan for your life. And with the incremental cash that you can generate from step one, use that to, I'm talking about unsecured personal debt, credit cards, whatever. I'm not talking about collateralized notes on productive assets. That's a form of financing. It's not debt in the sense I'm using here. If you financed a productive asset, that's a whole different issue. The, the asset will pay off the loan. But I'm talking about unsecured personal debt. So that's, that's step two. Get out of personal debt. Okay. Now, if you've done that, you've earned the right to get to step three. Step three is to guard your liquidity. Be cautious when you find investments that look like they have an extremely attractive return because that with that attractive return probably comes some serious risk. So evaluate that carefully, but guard your liquidity. Be able, keep your, in other words, keep your flexibility because we don't know what's coming. There are all kinds of tensions on the horizon. The one thing, if you analyze the strategic horizon, whether it's from a secular point of view or a prophetic point of view, there's no question about the next number of months, number of years, are going to be more turbulent than most people realize. So one of the ways you prepare for that is to guard your liquidity. And that requires diligence. Make sure you don't get into excessive commitments that cloud your liquidity. And that leads to the most important thing of all, and that's learn the supernatural basis for stewardship. Learn the supernatural basis for stewardship. I spent most of my executive career, I had a 30-year career of, as a director of public companies, some dozen of them. I've been chairman and CEO of six different publicly traded companies. I have a, a what would be regarded as a relatively sophisticated financial background. And, and uh, I have to tell you, almost everything I've learned in financial management is upside down compared to what God tells you to do. One of the things you want to do, no matter how financially sophisticated you are, if that's fine, set it aside, find out God's plan for uh, financing, you'll discover his uses and approach to money is just the opposite of what most of us do. Uh, in fact, uh, what are the purposes for money? Well, there's four at least. God's provision, his direction for our lives, his form of fellowship, and the way he demonstrates himself. And what I mean by that? Well, his provision. I'm taking some of this from 1 Kings 17 and other places. God uses our finances, first of all, to establish daily dependence on him. 
The dream of every financial guy is to be financially independent. Well, God doesn't want you independent. He wants you dependent on Him. God used our finances to deepen our love for Him. There's nothing more exciting than to watch Him walk with us moment by moment, hand by hand. And that should, in fact, develop a spirit of gratefulness in us. should teach us to live within our means. Most of us are always stretching that point. And to help us enjoy our possessions. God wants you to enjoy your possessions, but he wants it from a position of satisfaction, not a point, of, not from a point of view of uh, coveting or ingratitude. Okay, second thing, God uses our finances and our financial situation to give us direction, to build our faith and vision, to determine who really is the Lord of our life, to protect us from harmful items. Often there's something that he denies you because he knows it fundamentally it be harmful. <laughs> Every time that you buy a lottery ticket and don't win, that's God protecting you from something that would probably harm you. You may not see it that way, but you can count on it. And it teaches patience. How often we pray, gee, God, I need patience and I need it right now. You never play for patience because tribulation makes us patience, but I won't get into that here. Uh, and of course, the other reason, he, he, he wants us to concentrate on what the true riches are. The true riches are the riches that you can really enjoy. And God also uses it for fellowship. He desires to use our finances to unite Christians. One of the things you can do with your resources that you have is to use it to unite Christians, to demonstrate the mark of a Christian, and uh, to initiate spontaneous thanksgiving. Isn't it wonderful to have a surplus so that when you see a need, a spontaneous need, you can help that person right then. That's exciting. There's nothing more fun than that. And to multiply the potential for giving... It's one of the reasons we invest and hope to multiply our assets is to be able to do more for the kingdom. And he uses it to demonstrate in our lives God's power, to cause Christians to trust him, to mock the false gods of our age, to purify our lives and motives, and to bring non-Christians to salvation. So that's just a quick summary of a more in-depth study, and of course to glorify God. Which leads, of course, to another subject, the tithe. Gee, that's an Old Testament thing. No, it's a New Testament thing, too. Why tithe? Well, for one thing, it acknowledges the Creator's rights. You realize that, see, a tenth of everything is His. Till you give a tenth, you just, you haven't given, you just given back His own. You haven't done that yet. You haven't given an offering until you exceed the tenth. That's the concept. And that, that precedes the law. That precedes Exodus 20 and so forth. That's, uh, Abraham gave tithes. That's long before Moses. It's the antidote for greed and covetousness. Tithing is an antidote for greed and covetousness. And boy, that's a that's that's one of its great blessings. And of course, the test of our faith. It's the only place, by the way, I think most of you know, it's the only place in the, in the Bible that God paints himself in a corner, puts himself in a box. God dares, you, you, all the way through the scripture, in fact, even Jesus quoted that, that you don't test God. Remember in the three temptations on uh, when Satan tempted Christ, you don't tempt you don't tempt God. There is an exception to that, strangely, huh? in Malachi three verses nine and ten. God says, I, I, "God dares you to put him on the spot. Prove me now herewith," saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window, you know, where have you robbed God in tithes and offerings? Prove me now herewith, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, so there won't be room enough to receive it. That's his challenge. So the tithe is the solution to every financial problem. If you've got a financial problem, the tithe is the answer, interestingly enough, to wherever you're, you know, getting blessed. 
So those are the four main things, but there's a fifth I usually add whenever I go through this, and that's to put on the whole armor of God. That's a whole study in its own right from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Twice, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, not just your favorite pieces, all seven elements. And what are they? You want to gird your loins with truth? You want to put on the breastplate of righteousness, find out what that's really all about? That's not just idioms taken from a, a, a centurion that was chained to Paul at the time. He was chained to Paul at the time. He was chained to Paul so the centurion couldn't get away. You see? And, they, and as a result, they became saved. We understand from Paul's letters, the household of Caesar. The point is that those idiom, these idioms are coming out of the Old Testament from Isaiah 55 and elsewhere. And they put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel. Preparation is the key. Shield of faith. Are there holes in your shield of faith? If so, fix them now, not when you need them. Helm of salvation, what's that all about? Each one of these requires some study, and each one of these I encourage you to study. And the sword of the Spirit, most of us understand what that one is. But the heavy artillery is yet to be mentioned, and that's our prayer. You have the action at a distance kind of thing. You have a hotline 24 hours a day to the throne room of the universe, and he's anxious to hear from us. But anyway, let's get back to, uh, you probably figured I had abandoned totally Ecclesiastes, but I used verse 2 as sort of a, a springboard, because uh, Solomon's going to talk about this, underlying some of the other idioms he uses. He's going to talk about a farmer now. He talked about the, the idea of the merchant ship with ships. He used that as an idiom before. He said, if the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree fall toward the south and toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. Kind of a strange verse. See, clouds, what he's really contracting, clouds are always changing. They come and go. And the farmer, of course, hopes that they'll spill their water on, on his fields. Trees are sort of permanent. They stand in the same place where their storm topples them or not. They're still there. They lie there and rot. The tree sort of is idiomatically speaking of the past, which can't be changed. And the present, the clouds represent the present. And we have to seize every opportunity. As they say on Wall Street, in a sense, new day, new deal. In that sense, history independent. Now, Solomon is using idioms here from the farmer. You know, farming's never been easy work. It's a, and especially true in that region in those days. The Jews tilled a rocky soil. They depended on the early and the latter rains to nourish their seed. And nobody can predict the weather, let alone control it. So the farmer is very much at the mercy of nature. And that's what he's using this as an idiom about life in general. Daniel Webster called farmers the founders of civilization. Interesting enough, Thomas Jefferson said they were the chosen people of God, in a sense. So farmers are fundamental, and they certainly were in those days. So he goes on in verse 4, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. In other words, if you're only going to move what things you're certain they're going to be uh, right, you'll never get anything done. See, as thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, or how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh them all. So sort of the flavor here is don't sit around waiting for ideal circumstances. The wind's never right for the sower, the clouds are never right for the reaper. Uh, Billy Sunday said, if you're looking for an excuse doing nothing, you can always find one. He, he said, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. <laughs> so life's an adventure, in effect, and we must always launch out by faith, even when the circumstances may seem adverse. I think it's Baron Rothschild, at, uh, Rothschild, I should say, uh, on Wall Street that uh, said many years ago, you buy when there's blood in the streets. What he meant was, when everybody else is selling is when you buy. When everybody else is buying, that's a good time to sell, so... 
Or sometimes it's in Wall Street. Bull markets are always, they always climb a wall of worry. But uh, anyway, get to verse 5. Thou knowest not what is in the way of the Spirit. You know, um, just as nobody knows what's the way of the wind. You remember that uh, in John 3 and so forth. Jesus comments on that. You know, it's interesting. A new baby is still God's greatest miracle. But you never really know how it's going to turn out. So he's using that as a, an example on the one hand of uncertainty, and yet God has a time and purpose for each of these things. In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thy hand, for thou knowest not whether it shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike and good. And when it says prosper, he says whether it shall be right. Therefore use every day wisely. Get up early, sow your seed, work hard until evening, do the job at hand, and redeem the time, as, as, as Ephesians 5 would put it. And uh, trusting God, do it blessedly some of the time. You can't assure success, but you can endeavor to deserve it. So each of us is like a merchant investing today what will pay dividends tomorrow. Or like a farmer where we sow different kinds of seeds in different soils, trusting God for the harvest. If we're always worrying about the tree, the wind toppling a tree on top of us or the clouds drenching us with the rain at the wrong times, we never accomplish anything. That's why the merchant sends out more than one ship and why the farmer typically works on more than one crop. And Arthur Rubenstein said, of course, there's no formula for success except perhaps an unconditional acceptance of life and what it brings. That's the first item that he deals with. Now, in verse, from verse 7 through uh, early part of chapter 12, he's going to talk about life is a gift, so enjoy it. And this, in effect, is Solomon's final, the sixth admonition that we've gone through, and its final admonition that we should accept life as a gift and enjoy all that uh, God shares with us. So in order to do this, we have to do three things. We have to rejoice, and we have to remove, we'll discover, and remember. What do I mean by rejoice? Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many, all that cometh is vanity. Strange way of putting it, perhaps, from our, to our ears, but what Psalm is trying to do is instruct the young people to take advantage of the days of youth, before the days of darkness, as he calls it, arrive. He's not suggesting that young people have no problems or that older people have no joys. He's simply making a generalization that youth is the time for enjoyment before the problems of old age start to reveal themselves. The famous, if you've been, of course, in, in college in English literature, you've probably come across Robert Herrick's famous poem, in which he includes, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow, will be dying. It's also perhaps summarized in that Latin expression, carpe diem, seize the day. And Solomon continues, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. So what he's saying is young people have to watch their hearts and their eyes because either or both can lead them to sin. And uh, walk in the ways of your heart is not Solomon encouraging you to uh, go to a youthful fling and satisfy some sinful desires. Um, it's a reminder for young people to enjoy the special pleasures that youth do bring that can never again be experienced in the same way. But his warning is evidence that he doesn't have sinful pleasures in mind. God will bring you into judgment, he reminds us. Paul says a similar thing to Timothy in chapter 6, verse 17, to enjoy all things richly. But uh, it's always wrong to enjoy the pleasures of sin. And uh, a young person who enjoys life and, and uh, 
in, in the will of God. We'll have nothing to worry about when the Lord does return. Well, that was uh, to to uh, rejoice. Then the second element of enjoying is is to remove. Strangely enough, verse ten. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. Or like, remember the word vanity? We talked about that when we started the study. It's like a vapor; it will vanish. What's really going to hammer here is that privileges must be balanced by personal responsibilities. Young people should take anxiety out of their hearts and evil from their flesh. The word sorrow, by the way, here really means vexation or inner pain or anxiety. Remove anxiety from their heart. So if you're living in the will of God, you will have the peace of God in your hearts. The sins of flesh only destroy the body and can bring eternal judgment to the soul. So that's a source of anxiety and and, and ignorance. The phrase um, childhood and youth are vanity doesn't mean that these stages of life are unimportant and, and a waste of time. Quite the opposite. The best way to live a happy adult life is, and to be in a contented old age is to get a good start and avoid the things that will bring trouble later. Many people you know, try to sow their wild oats and then pray for crop failure, right? You know, young people should take care of their minds and bodies and avoid destructive sins of the flesh. Build good habits of health and happiness. Much better chance for your, the rest of your life, not just youth, but your adult years also. The phrase really means that the childhood and youth are transient. The precious years go by and and uh, shouldn't waste our opportunities for preparing for for the future. In other words, you can every 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 stage in life has its role. That's sort of what chapter three said: a time for this and a time for that. You recall that series. The word translated "youth" can mean the dawning or blackness of hair, as opposed to gray hair. So, youth is a time of dawning, and uh, but before we know it, the sun will begin to set. Is what what Solomon's saying. So, we want to make the most of those dawning years. Charles Spurgeon said, uh, youthful sins lay a foundation for aged sorrows. Had a aging relative point out to me something. He says, Chuck, um, we don't grow old. You wake up one day and discover you are. And uh, how true that is. Well, that brings us to uh, chapter 12, the last chapter of the book. And we won't try to take the whole chapter. We'll just uh, jump in take part of it here. This third instruction talks about, remember it said rejoice and remove, now remember. And remember really means uh, to, you know, to think about God here, uh, pay attention to, consider the, with the intention of obeying. And this is going to be sort of Solomon's version of Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it's easy to neglect the Lord when we're all caught up in enjoyments and opportunities of youth. Remember now thy creator, first one, in the days of thy youth, while the evil, evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun, or the light, or the moon, or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. And he goes on. See, we know that there will be dark days, and difficult days coming. So you want to lay a good spiritual foundation as early as possible. And that's in our youthful years. The sky is bright, but the time will come when there's darkness and storms. Another prayer that I encourage us to consider when you're praying is pray that the lessons not be wasted. We're constantly getting lessons, and God will take us through our His schoolroom. One of the prayers is to exploit those times to understand what He would have us learn, so we learn it the first time. Well, from verses 3 through 7, there is a very imaginative description of old age and death. It's probably the most imaginative description found anywhere in literature. And I have to admit the commentators and, and, and inquirers 
don't really agree on the details of the interpretation, although most of them do recognize that we have a picture of a house that's crumbling, that's intended to portray um, uh, life. It's a house that's falling apart and finally turns to dust. Now, a dwelling place has often been a biblical metaphor uh, for the human body. You find that in Job and 2 Corinthians and where it's a tent and, and, and 2 Peter, it's a tent and so forth. So the taking down of a house or a tent can be, idiomatically speaking, of death. And that's the, that's the tangent that most people draw from the verses that, 3 through 7 that follow. In the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves and the grinders cease because they are few and those that look out of the windows be darkened and it's going to go on. The keepers of the house sounds like us, our bodies. And perhaps this suggests when our arms and hands tremble. And, uh, and the strong men shall bow, them, bow themselves. You're, that's when your legs, knees, shoulders weaken and you walk bent over. And the grinders, when you start to lose your teeth. Or the windows, that is when your vision uh, begins to deteriorate. And the door shall be shut in the streets when the sound of grinding is low. And he shall rise up at the voice of the bird. And all the daughters of music shall be brought low. And the doors uh, suggesting maybe the hearing starts to fail or maybe you close your mouth because you've lost your teeth. Grinding because you can't chew your food and your ears can't pick up the sounds outdoors or whatever. Uh, rise up, wake up. With the birds early in the morning, you wish you could sleep longer. And then your voice starts to quaver and weaken is the, is the suggestion. And when they shall be afraid of that which is high and the fear shall be in the way and the almond tree shall flourish and the grasshopper shall be a burden and the desire shall fail because man goeth to his long home. And the mourners go about the streets. Strange, strange uh, rendering of this. You know, the almond tree uh, implies whiteness, but white blossoms. So if you have any hair left, it turns white. And the, the idea that, that uh, the grasshopper shall be burned. You just drag yourself along like a grasshopper at the close of summer. And uh, then he changes the shifts here a little bit. Uh, he says, Or ever the silver cord loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, and the pitcher be broken at the fountain, and the wheel broken at the cistern. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Now this is this golden bowl is like a lamp hanging from a ceiling on a silver chain. Chain breaks, the ball breaks, uh, the uh, cord of life, if you will, is snapped, the light, and the light of life goes out, sort of the imagery here. Now only wealthy people could uh, have such costly lamps, so he may be also hinting that death is no respecter of persons. The verse also pictures a windlass there, the, the uh, at a well, bring up a pitcher filled with water. One day the wheel breaks, the pitcher shattered, the end comes. And water was also an ancient uh, image for life in Psalm 36 and Revelation 21 and elsewhere. So when the machinery of life stops working, the water of life stops flowing. Heart stops pumping, the blood stops circulating, and death has come. That's sort of the flavor of what's in progress here. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to the God who gave it. So the Spirit leaves the body. We see that in James 2 and Luke 23, Acts 7. The body begins to decay and eventually it turns to dust. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And this is the last time in this discourse that uh, Solomon, the preacher, says vanity of vanity is all is vanity. The book closes where it began, which emphasizes the emptiness of life without God. If you look at life under the sun, everything does seem vain, but when you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Remember that, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. In our final session, we'll review the book from end to end in terms of how it's structured, and we'll go to, through 
Solomon's final conclusion, which finishes uh, chapter 12. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. A strange book, because we're hearing from Solomon from the point of view of man's wisdom. But I wanted to uh, emphasize, it's amazing to me how many commentators really miss the, the, the real thrust of Ecclesiastes. They, they, they stumble over all the pe- what sounds like pessimism. And of all the commentators that I've reviewed, uh, Warren Wiersbe's is, is to me the one that really grasps the core of this book by pointing out that Solomon himself isn't pessimistic. He's bravely honest, but he also, in effect, comes, presents that conclusion that without God, life is, is vanity. But nothing's vain in the Lord. And he, and he also is focusing his activities within this brief span between birth and death. Yet acknowledges that it has, it takes its relevance and its meaning from beyond death in the sense that God will hold us accountable and so forth. So, so it's interesting that, uh, uh, even in this, uh, very human, uh, kind of, uh, discourse, we see Solomon, uh, acknowledging the reality of God and that all things will take significance by him. And his admonitions are to really understand that not only is life to be enjoyed, but the ability to enjoy it itself is a gift. And to understand each stage of life and and exploit it for its uniqueness. We'll see how he summarizes all. Next time we'll try to tie it all together. It's a little hard to do in the last few minutes here. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we just praise you. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the opportunity to Enjoy your word, Father. We do pray that the lessons not be wasted. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and lives to your word and help us, Father, to be ever better stewards, to be uh, diligent in our preparation and diligent in our supervision of the opportunities you've placed before us. Help us, Father, to be effective and to be good stewards for the kingdom as we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.